Welcome to another edition of Let's Talk Vets. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. This is where we discuss vet-centric topics, the good, the bad, and the ugly, in the hope that listeners will better understand our veterans, our veterans will know they're not alone, and perhaps along the way, we'll learn something about each other. We sincerely hope we accomplish that mission. The opinions expressed herein are mine alone as a veteran. Tonight, join me for a virtual journey to a Vietnam Veterans Day luncheon at Clear Path for Veterans Headquarters in Chittenango, New York. This organization serves area vets as well as many throughout New York State with a robust range of programs. I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me, according to regulations and the Uniform Code of Military Justice, so help me God. Of course, you recognize that as the oath of enlistment of the U.S. military. This essentially affirms in broad terms what we agree to do in the course of our service to the country. But what is it that often makes our military members perform above and beyond the call of duty? It is character and courage. Because an oath has little meaning if those who take it do not possess these qualities. I cite two recent tragic events to underscore this point. On April 30th, loved ones paid their last respects to Bishop Evans, 22, a member of the Texas National Guard whose body was recovered near Eagle Pass, Texas, April 25th. Specialist Evans of Arlington died after going into the Rio Grande on Friday, April 22nd, to rescue two migrants struggling to swim across. Evans graduated from high school in 2018 and joined the National Guard shortly thereafter. Evans was deployed as part of Operation Lone Star, a Texas border security initiative launched because our president is not fulfilling his oath. Willie Joseph Cancel, 22, a former U.S. Marine, an Orange County, New York native, was hired by a private security firm to fight alongside Ukrainian soldiers against Russian invaders, was killed on April 25th. Cancel's mother, Rebecca Cabrera said, quote, he wanted to go over because he believed in what the Ukraine was fighting for, and he wanted to be part of it, to contain it there so it wouldn't come here, and so maybe our American soldiers wouldn't have to be involved in it, unquote. Willie flew to Poland on March 12th and arrived in the Ukraine the next day to fight alongside men from all different countries. 
Now, President Biden expressed his condolences to Cancel's family at a recent press conference. Biden said, it's very sad he left a little baby behind. It is indeed fitting that our president remembered this young man. However, didn't Bishop Evans deserve the same respect? When asked about it, the White House press secretary seemed to justify the exclusion because Evans was a member of the Texas National Guard and therefore not a federal employee, which I guess is the reason Mr. Biden ignored his sacrifice to save two strangers attempting to illegally enter our country. So a former Marine acting as a private contractor, not representing the U.S., fighting alongside Ukrainian patriots to defend their sovereign nation and their borders, merits recognition from the Commander-in-Chief, while a member of the Texas National Guard on active duty defending U.S. sovereignty and our southern border does not. Well, perhaps it just slipped his mind, or perhaps he intentionally chose not to mention it. The sad fact is that Bishop Evans would probably still be alive if our president had the character and courage to fulfill the obligations of the oath he took and properly secure the border in spite of political narratives to the contrary. Sadly, few of our elected officials have the character and courage of those who serve. Those who still hold the Constitution as sacred and do the right thing even when no one's watching, without regard to votes. These people are our last defense against those who are systematically destroying the fundamental institutions of our Republic. And I fear that we will see a decline in those willing to serve this country as our military institutions become another casualty of those more concerned with power riches and political correctness. There's something wrong with the world today. I don't know what it is. Something's wrong with our eyes. We're seeing things in a different way. And God knows it ain't his. It sure ain't no surprise. Yeah, we're living on a Clear path for don't know what it is. Something's wrong with our eyes. We're seeing things in a different way. God knows it ain't his. It sure ain't no surprise. Yeah, we're living on a Clear Path for Veterans is another excellent example of ordinary people doing extraordinary things for our veterans. Founded in 2010, centered on providing service dogs for veterans, the organization today includes that canine program, culinary arts, creative arts, wellness, peer counseling, 
and navigation of the civilian world and government bureaucracy for vets and those transitioning back to the world. I had the honor of attending a Vietnam Veterans Day recognition on March 29th at their Chittenango, New York headquarters. Area veterans and guests were treated to a top-shelf feast and enjoyed a real wartime story of love, courage, and character. While there, we also had a, a long chat with Melissa Spicer, the co-founder of this fantastic organization. Welcome to Let's Talk Vets. Melissa, how are you? I'm well, Doug. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Well, you are one of the founders of Clear Path for Veterans. And as I often say, you know, folks doing work for veterans are ordinary people doing extraordinary work. And, and you guys and your staff and your organization are no exception. Before Clear Path was even on your radar, you and your sister, Melinda Sorrentino, were pretty successful, right? Yes, you know, we had a very successful uh, student housing community that my father had started in the 70s. We both entered into that business. I did in 85, and she joined later in 87. And the, and the company was called Campus Hill Apartments, which we sold in 2007. And that's where we really got our hands dirty in business and organizational structure, finances. And we're able to give back to the student population of Syracuse University at the time in a way that made their living experience really meaningful. So you guys had this uh, going enterprise, but you decided to sell. Mm -hmm. And uh, you sold the business and then looking for something else to do. And tell us where that led you. So we did sell in 2007, but I'm going to take us back to about 2003. And I personally had some significant uh, invisible struggles, if you will. I was finding out or realizing that I may never have children. As for a woman, that is very difficult. So I, I was driving my husband crazy. He said, would you please go get a dog? Because you need something to do. So I got a dog. Her name was Maddie. Uh, I got her certified in pet therapy. And then I... I found this woman who was starting a daycare, basically, and I ended up taking Maddie there. And eventually I bought her little fledgling business, and then I created the first doggy daycare, if you will, in the Syracuse area, which I still own today. And during that time, I was trying to heal my own soul. Very difficult for me socially at the time to be around anybody. So I was doing a lot of the self-isolating, and I was very angry, but my dog was really helping me get through that. But I didn't want anybody help, and I didn't, I didn't want any help, and I didn't want anybody to feel sorry for me. So I did a lot of work within the inner city schools with my dog, Maddie. I went to places that no one else would go. I was really, you know, looking back, hurting. So this gentleman called looking for a dog trainer for a program called Dogs to Vets at the time. And I ignored his call probably four or five times. He was very persistent. And I finally called him back. And I said, sir, uh, appreciate the phone call, but I do a lot of work in the community with the veterinary community, and I'm going to make, I'm going to pass. And he went silent and he said, I'm not a veterinarian. I'm a veteran. And that was kind of an internal joke. I was so taken back by it, uh, I said, well, let's meet. 
We did that on December 31st, 2010, and that's what kind of got me to step into the space of veterans. And that program that uh, he envisioned became Dogs to Vets? Well, it did. That was their original name. We have, of course, since then, it's now called the Canine Programming at ClearPath. The original concept of Dogs to Vets was to match veterans with shelter dogs and then help them train their own service dog. There's a lot of models out there that do that. We found some areas where that worked and that didn't work. So our current canine program director, Ryan Woodruff, who was a veteran in the program himself, now has led that program into a whole new level of excellence. But the concept of the dog helping humans, you know, has been around for thousands of years. So that was the inspiration for me to step into the space of veterans because what I did like about the veterans and the veteran space was I could relate to them in that you may need help, but you didn't want anybody to feel sorry for you. So that was an easy concept for me to grasp because I was personally living that myself. I don't know. I felt I felt like the canine program broke down some of those barriers because for, for many of us, our pets get us through some difficult times. So working dogs and specifically, which is what service dogs are, you know, just was an area that I had never explored. I had only been in the therapy dog world seeing the benefits of canine companionship. But when I got into the working dog arena, it really opened my eyes uh, to a whole new level of training that, you know, thankfully Ryan Woodruff has been able to harness and take us to the next level. Well, and to your point, I mean, dogs are non-judgmental. They pretty much sense who you are and what you need before you have to ask. And I think that there's times when you just want to be left alone. They go to sleep maybe next to you, but they're they're very intuitive. I would agree with that, Doug. And I think, you know, I'll take it one step forward. The dogs are a safe tool for us to self-regulate ourselves. In other words, you know, I'll speak specifically to the service dogs. We all, as humans, have moments of hypervigilance. However, you know, veterans have their own experiences that they may be still trying to work through, and I'll use the example of sleeplessness or nightmares or, you know, things like that, where canines can be trained to actually watch our body language intensely so that they know what we're feeling without us having to say it. And then we can teach, we can train a dog how to respond to that, and then they can help ground us, which is why I feel very strongly that service dogs are a very powerful tool to empower people to be the best they can be. And I had the opportunity to meet a trainer and see one of your dogs when I was privileged to attend the Vietnam Veterans Day observance at your headquarters in Chittenango. And I mean, that's 78 acres, I believe, overlooking Mm -hmm. Oneida Lake, and it's, it's breathtaking. How did that come about? Well, whether it's a blessing or a curse, my husband and I have lived in this community for six generations, where I always say to people, we're either committed or we're crazy, but this area means a lot to us. It has got rich history. We live on a farm that was a Revolutionary War track given to someone in his family. So the location that you visited 
for the Vietnam Veteran Appreciation Day was owned by one family since 1959, and my husband and I have known that family for his entire life anyway. Uh, they loved the property, had great meaning to them, probably one of the most beautiful locations here in our area. I felt very strongly that to prove that we as a community cared about our veterans, that we needed to show it. You know, we had a lot of organizations that were creating veteran programs as a secondary focus, if you will. There were few organizations that were dedicating beautiful spaces to their veteran programs. So I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a woman that you need to build trust. I'm a person that trust is really important. Safety of space is really important. And that location just came to my mind as the ideal place to dedicate to the veterans of our community and uh, went to the family and asked them if they would be willing to sell. I, they said yes. <laughs> I was a little caught off guard. But then I said, okay, we're going to buy it. But then I needed a partner to really help make that happen. And, of course, we had sold our family business, and that's when I went to my sister, who, you know, we do a lot of things together. And so we were able to financially put the money up to acquire the property and renovate it. And then very quickly, I brought in the Vietnam veterans to make sure that we were going to be on track. Because in my opinion, you know, my, my opinion and my commitment to that generation is that what happened to them on their return home will never happen again. So that location uh, has a deep history in the area. Obviously, we have a lot of the Native American community around us that supported uh, the colonists during the Revolutionary War. So we went to them and said, listen, this is what we want to do. What do you think? They were in favor of it, and we just made the, we made the commitment. My sister and I made the financial commitment to get this off the ground. So you've taken the NGO one step further, and you've encompassed a number of programs that kind of fit with that space. So tell us about the programs that you offer today. So the programs that we developed, Doug, over time, I mean, obviously we started with a canine program. We followed the six dimensions of wellness, a very holistic approach, if you will, to a healthy human. Uh, the beauty of working with veterans is they have an innate desire to give back. I created a small veteran advisory board that would give me some ideas of what programs were important to them that also could fit into that six dimensions of wellness. So it went this quickly. We had the canine program in 2011. We developed a wellness program in 2012, which focused on other options for veterans to find relief from some of their symptoms. In 2013, I went to West Point and saw a video about the North Platte Canteen and went back to the team and I said, we got to do a Wednesday Canteen. If you haven't seen the video, people out there, I highly recommend you Google it. And in that North Platte Canteen concept, it was a community that fed mostly the National Guard going off to war during World War II. But the way the community loved those people for 10 minutes was something that I felt very strongly we needed to do from our facility there in Chittenango. But what I also liked about the canteen model was that it was a great space for veterans to help one another and without saying, you know, geez, I need help. So in 2013, we did our first canteen, and then shortly after that, we developed our peer program. And that peer program 
we kind of took the concept of the life cycle of a warrior, you know, the traditional life cycle of a warrior, some warrior culture, and then a little bit of the 12-step recovery models that are out there so that our peers are really there to walk side by side with the veteran, no matter where they are in their journey out of the service. And those peers are able to meet in an environment that feels more like the dinner table, you know, than an office or a patient room at a hospital. So we found that to be very effective, and that exploded very quickly. So quickly after that, we developed a family program because a lot of the post-9-11 veterans had children and would do more for their family than they would for themselves. So we created a family program in 2015, and then shortly after that, we developed our final program called the Warriors Working Program, which is an employment placement program. So that's basically the programs that we offer. I think a good portion of our mission is to educate the broader community on warrior culture and the and their role in supporting veterans in their journey home. And we feel very strongly that every community can have a clear path or should have a clear path in some way, shape, or form so that we're always prepared to give the veterans what they need because I firmly believe this, and so does our entire organization, that healthy veterans transform communities. And if we can invest in their well-being, we will all be stronger in the end. Well, it's, that's well said, and it, it is a problem that is becoming worse, the disconnect between the veterans' experience and the, uh, the civilian experience. So what are your plans for Clear Path for the future? Have you got any goals or even far-fetched uh, visions that you'd like to explore? Doug, that's a great question, and I appreciate you asking that. I'm really trying to hold back my passion right now. I will just speak for me personally as, as one of the founders, and, you know, my other two founders couldn't have done what, they, what we did without them. They both moved on in 2012 or 2013, but this is a space I've been in since the very beginning. And... I was one of those disconnected civilians from from the veteran population. I was clueless, obviously. But what I have learned is that we have more in common with them than we don't. And I feel very strongly that this is a population, and I'll go back thousands and thousands of years, that is so worth investing in. And I want to inspire other communities or other people like myself, other entrepreneurs that have had success in business to call us and say, listen, we would love to have something similar in our community, and how do we do that? You know, we want to share what we do with other communities because, in my opinion, we owe it to everybody that serves, and I think we as a community have to recognize our responsibility in keeping us free. And I think these centers, these clear path centers that are out there are dedicated space that they can see and say, this is where I can go. This is where I can find what I need, whether it be, you know, you're on your absolute worst or you're on your best or you're somewhere in between. And I think strategically what ClearPath would love to be able to do is work with communities that say, we want this and then identify where we could have, quote, a clear path next. We, we kind of did this in Massachusetts with a couple that came to us and said we need this in our community. 
we're expanding throughout New York State. But what we don't want to do, Doug, is go in and tell anybody what to do. This is a model that has really gr deep grassroots, but those those grassroots engagements that we have affect us globally. I mean, I as, as recently as two months ago said that a warrior is a warrior. doesn't matter. Country doesn't matter. I would say we have one human race. We have one warrior culture. And I worked a lot with the special forces, particularly as we withdrew out of Afghanistan. And what I recognize is a clear path home is not just in this country. You know, it was for the folks in Afghanistan. It's for the folks in Ukraine right now. So, I mean, if, I, if you want me to go really big, I feel pretty confidently that a community-based model like we have that develop the programs that we have and engages the community like we have is something that can be done anywhere to heal our warriors. That's the real goal here. And if those warriors are healed, they will be, they will be leaders and get us to where we need to go. So that's my big lofty goal. Hopefully no one on the board is going to say, oh, no, here she goes. <laughs> but I aspire us to become the inspiration for others to do this. Well, and I think I think you're uh, on your way to doing that. Um, you've done amazing work, and I wish you nothing but the best. Melissa Spicer, co-founder of Clear Path for Veterans, headquarters in Chittenango, New York. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, Doug. I really appreciate it. So don't touch that dial. Let's Talk Vets will be right back. And we're back. You're listening to Let's Talk Vets on Radio Catskill, WJFF. Tom and Nellie Coakley are Vietnam veterans who both served in the Army. Nellie, a combat nurse, and Tom as an... Tom was critically wounded, losing his lower left leg. And when Nellie returned to the States, she served as head nurse at Walter Reed Orthopedic Amputee Ward for Enlisted Soldiers. It's there that Tom and Nellie met. Nellie has served as a war trauma counselor for 28 years, working with clients from the Korean War and Vietnam War, as well as those from Afghanistan, Iraq, and other peacekeeping missions. Tom has worked with amputees and prosthetic organizations and has taught war topic courses at St. Lawrence University. Tom and Nellie were the featured speakers at this fantastic event. Thank you for joining Clear Path for Veterans on National Vietnam War Veterans Day. Our mission at Clear Path is to support the journey home for all veterans, military members, families, and caregivers. With that, I offer our sincerest welcome to all new and returning guests, as well as our community partners joining us this morning. My name is Alex Bem, and I'm privileged to serve as the Executive Director here at Clear Path for Veterans. The ClearPath family, staff, and volunteers express our deepest gratitude to all who served in the Vietnam War and for the sacrifices made on behalf of our nation. At this time, I ask that we take a moment of silence to honor and remember those who cannot be with us here today, for those who remain missing and unaccounted for, and in memory of Vietnam veterans Ron Dean, past ClearPath facilities director, and Gordy Lane, 
past president of Vietnam Veterans of America, Chapter 103, and advocate for all veterans. Before I introduce our guest speakers, I'd like to take a moment to express our thanks to our dearest friends at Empower Federal Credit Union for sponsoring today's event. Empower is also supporting the event today here with volunteers, both in the kitchen uh, and out in the great room. So let's give them a, a warm round of applause. partners and service providers who joined us here in our fishbowl this morning. I hope you all got a chance to say hello to them. Uh, we cannot do what we do here at ClearPath without the support of the community and those who provide services uh, to those we serve. So a special thanks to the Purple Heart Hall of Fame, the DAV, Honor Flight, Onondaga County Veteran Service Agency, Madison County Veteran Service Agency, uh, the Syracuse VA Medical Center, the Syracuse Vet Center, and the Department of New York State Veteran Services. So please, round of applause. Uh, additionally, we have an amazing display on our lower level. Uh, it's a Vietnam War memorabilia display. Uh, the items that are on display are from a personal uh, collection of local veteran and longtime friend, uh, Rob Good. So thank you, Rob, for sharing that today with us. Uh, at this time, I'd ask that you join me in welcoming our distinguished guests of honor today uh, from Canton, New York. Uh, when Tom and uh, Nellie and I were talking two months ago, there was no snow outside, it was a beautiful day, and they both said, maybe we should come down a little bit early, you never know if you're going to get a snowstorm in April. And here we are as of Monday when they were coming down in a snowstorm, so thank you for making the trip. Uh, Tom and Nellie share a legacy of military service, uh, with Tom's father serving as a major in World War II, and Nellie's father as a career military officer. In 1969, Tom served as an infantryman in the United States Army and was critically wounded during his combat service in Vietnam. Nellie served as a captain in the Army Nurse Corps, assigned to a MASH unit in Vietnam from 1968 to 1969. Later, as Nellie was providing critical care to injured service members at Walter Reed Medical Center, she met Private First Class Tom Coakley <laughs> as he was receiving care for his injuries. Uh, both are longtime advocates for the military and veteran community and have one of the most incredible stories that I've been privileged to hear uh, in my lifetime. So I'm going to turn it over to Tom and Nellie Coakley. Welcome. very much for having us here today. Uh, this is a real honor for us. Each of your lives out there tells a story. And for many of you, like for Tom and me, that story includes Vietnam. I joined the Army Student Nurse Program and graduated from the University of Maryland. Then after finishing my basic training at Fort Sam Houston, where they told us 90% of us would be in Vietnam, um, I was on my way to Vietnam. <laughs> and um, right after the Tet Offensive, I was assigned to the 11th Armored Cav Regiment um, at the 7th Surgical Hospital. And that's where I spent my tour. 
I tell people often that some of the best people I ever met, I met in Vietnam. And that was in many ways because status didn't matter. It didn't matter if you came from wealth. It didn't matter if you went to the right schools. It didn't matter if you lived in a really rural area. What mattered was, can I count on you? What mattered was character. It was a life-altering year for me, but one in which I came to know more about who I was and came to be very grateful for the experience. After Vietnam, I was assigned to Walter Reed. And something that struck me when I was there was that during the day when I would be on the ward and I was placed on and actually put in charge of the amputee orthopedic ward, we had two of them. We had a septic and an aseptic ward. And when I arrived at Walter Reed, I was in charge of both of them. And they were stacked on top of each other. If you remember the old Walter Reed, you had shoebox wards. And I'd be running up and down the steps to manage the septic ward and the aseptic. And eventually, I came to just work on the septic ward. We had a 40-bed unit with 50 patients. So it was quite challenging to make everything work. But what I was struck by was that during those hours when I was at Walter Reed, I would be immersed in Vietnam. And as soon as I would step off the grounds of Walter Reed, I was immersed in a world that was incredibly indifferent to Vietnam or hostile. And then I would be back in Vietnam the next day working on the wards. It was a lot of conflict in terms of how to work with that and, and working with your emotional um, side with this. But as my time at Walter Reed was coming near to an end, Tom Coakley arrived on the ward. And unbeknownst to both of us, I'm his nurse now, I had no idea that that was the beginning of a lifelong story for the two of us. When I left Walter Reed, and Tom and I re-met. It was about a year and a half later, and he came back to see me. I was working in hemodialysis as a civilian. And he came back and to say hi, and that was how our story began to really come together. We were married in 1972, but for 10 years, 10 years, we never talked about Vietnam. We moved from Philadelphia up here to Tom's hometown in Canton, New York. And I decided I would take a course on Vietnam to learn more about other people's roles and more about what happened there. Because my corner of the world in Three Corps was so limited. So the only time I could read the books that were required was at night after I got the kids in bed. And we had three children at that time. And I would climb into bed, and I'd be reading all these stories about Vietnam, the uh, documentary, the, uh, or personal accounts. And it was a Pandora's box. I started to feel the emotions. And, um, and the tears would come. And I'd start talking to Tom. And he had no interest at all in talking about Vietnam, especially at that time. And he would start to get sort of, uh, start to have some bad dreams. 
So I come to bed one night, and he's got this absolutely filthy novel he's reading, which was not my husband, right? And I look at him. I've got my book on Vietnam. And I said, Tom, what are you reading? And he goes, look, if I'm going to dream, I'm going to like what I dream about. <laughs> So the course on, on Vietnam started to inspire me, and, and there were a couple of other things that came into play that began to inspire me to do more with my own experience. And I chose to look into the Vet Center program. I went back and got my master's degree. I had heard about an outreach program in Rochester, uh, contacted them, and eventually uh, was connected into the Vet Center program, which was just starting. This is 1982 was just starting and was able to get a contract to work. The contract covered St. Lawrence, Jefferson, and Lewis counties. Eventually, um, over time, as, as uh, programs came into the Jefferson and Lewis County area, I worked exclusively with St. Lawrence and Franklin counties. That led to a 28-year career for me, and I loved it. I loved working with vets. And so often, I can remember when guys would be in their 30s coming in when I was first starting to work, I saw a 19-year-old boy because that's where their story began with Vietnam. There were other ways in which um, we, I used Vietnam, and that ended up becoming a more public endeavor, um, sometimes on my part, many times on someone else's. I was uh, part of the Vietnam Women's <coughs> Memorial Project. I, I got to know Diane Carlson Evans. I became the New York State Coordinator for the Vietnam Women's Memorial Project. Many of you might not know, but the Department of Defense chose not to, not to record and keep a record of any of the women they sent to Vietnam. So when we started the Vietnam Women's Memorial Project, the only way we could find out who had served was to start a sister-to-sister -sister search. And eventually, uh, we're able to recognize that about 9,500 women served in Vietnam. About 7,000 of those women were nurses. So it was an opportunity to educate people. First of all, that there were women in Vietnam that were serving in the military. And there were Red Cross women serving. Secondly, uh, what were some of the roles that we played there? and our contribution. The other thing is that uh, we ran into a snag with the uh, Fine Arts Commissioner, Jay Carter Brown. Um, he had initially, when we, he was approached, said that if we give the nurses a statue, we will have to give it to the dog handlers and every other special interest group. So that became another endeavor to get the approval to place a statue um, recognizing the women who had served in Vietnam on the grounds of the Vietnam Memorial. The next thing uh, I kind of stepped into, I became a um, consultant to the TV series China Beach. And it was, again, another opportunity to provide people with some insight into what women's roles were. We, I also got to appear on an episode, and there's a little story there. They flew Tom and I out for a special episode called Vets that they were filming. And 
So there were many of us that got interviewed for, for the show. They called me back at home and they said, Nellie, we've got good news and bad news. The good news is you're in the Vets episode. The bad news is Tom's not in the Vets episode. <laughs> but they eventually included him and he was uh, put in this episode called Survivors. I think one of the most interesting uh, two uh, experiences I had that were opportunities for me to help teach and educate was I was contacted by a former Navy SEAL living in Buffalo who asked me to be one of three Vietnam veterans invited to Coburg, Ontario, along with four Russian veterans of Afghanistan. We met in Coburg, Ontario, it was arranged by a school, and we talked to universities and schools in the area about our experiences with war. The four Russian Afghanistan veterans are extremely interesting. Two of them had become part of an organization in Russia called Af Afghanistan Veterans for Peace. When the government found out that these two veterans were coming to Canada, they sent two other veterans, along with two KBG agents, over. And so we're in this little boutique hotel in Coburg, Ontario, and um, it actually ended up working out very well. But it was, um, it was one of the first times that Russian veterans and Vietnam veterans had ever met, and it was filmed and featured on CNN. I really enjoyed getting to know their personalities and getting to see how in many ways we were all similar. The other, the other very big privilege Tom and I had was that Tom Brokaw had been at a Vietnam Veterans and Leadership meeting in conference, actually, in Albany. And I happened to be a speaker there that day. Tom was with me. We got to meet him. 20 years later, Tom Brokaw looked us up, found us, and included us in his book, Boom, and giving us a, an actual chapter in the book. He also included us in his documentary, 1968. Um, we felt very privileged to be part of, his, of the story he wanted to tell about Vietnam and about the 60s. I'm filling you in here on part of our story, but our sto my story also included many, many, many speaking engagements throughout the county, uh, different universities. There was a professor at Colgate who taught a course on Vietnam for probably 17, 18 years. Mary Peer came with me to the very first one that I spoke at. And I went back and spoke in his class for the probably 17 years after that. And it wasn't just about my experience. I taught and educated the kids on combat post-traumatic stress disorder. It was a wonderful opportunity to help educate people on the impact of war on those who served in war. And that um, I also have done that um, in community locations. That's some of the way in which I have used my experience. I'm going to turn this over now to Tom so that he can tell you his story.
Thank you. Thank you. Um, and thank you for hearing our story. Every single person in this room has a story, and it ought to be heard. And I hope that you share it with family and friends, because that's that's the way we humans learn is to is to experience the what other people experience. So Nellie and I had a very very different paths to uh, to Vietnam. Nellie knew she wanted to be a nurse, was very purposeful about it. She knew she wanted to be in the service and volunteered. She knew she wanted to go to Vietnam, and she didn't say it, but she volunteered for Vietnam. And she has, uh, uh, like a good captain would be, has been very, very purposeful about every one of those steps. For me, it was very different. I like to say I was very much part of the present. And my present was I was happily recruited from Little Cant, New York, to go play hockey at Brown University. And I loved being a jock on an Ivy League campus 350 miles from home. It was a wonderful feeling, but it was only in the present. And uh, it wasn't until April of my senior year when the draft board let me know, you will be drafted as soon as your 2S deferment goes. And frankly, I had never thought of it. I never thought about what I would do because I was just so caught up in my own life in, uh, in college. So I had the privilege, if you will, of knowing people and uh, was offered uh, a quick entrance into the reserves. And in those days, the reserves hardly ever served overseas, but, but not completely. There were certainly reserve units over there. But it was a, a pretty clear view, if you'll recall, to uh, six months of service and, and, and move on. And I thought, that sounds just fine to me. My father, who was the major in World War II, said to me, he said, Tom, this is your decision, but I want you to know that I feel if our neighbors have to take their chance, we have to take our chance. And that was it. So I signed up to go to OCS, and I was not enamored with our position on the war, but I was, I was going to serve. Halfway through our AIT training, 80 of us were marched into a uh, gymnasium and, put, and orders were put in front of us. And the orders basically stated that you have one and, one and only one choice, and that's infantry officer school. And we'd all gone in under a program where we had our choice. And I'm sure they had the right to do it, but, but I felt I, that I had taken the high road and that my government hadn't taken the high road. It was the hardest decision I ever made but 40 out of 80 of us refused to go on, and that would make us regular draftees. The other 40 did go on, and not one of us was very happy with that day. So it was a, a very, very difficult day. One step to another, we were quickly trained in jungle training, sent to Vietnam as, as infantry soldiers. Before I leave that, I just I want to make the point from, from this paths too that in our family, and she hates it when I say this, if there's a hero, that was, that was good timing for <laughs> if there is a, if If there is a hero in the Coakley family, it is certainly Nellie who made her choices all along. She shares that hero position with nine grandchildren now, but you can understand that. All nine grandchildren are, are heroes. <laughs> I want to very quickly share what I think are the most important points of, of my part of this. I was hit in an ambush. A hand grenade was thrown in. It, I was the radio man. It landed by my left leg. It was um, 
a Chai Khan grenade, if it was an American grenade, I would be dead and the six people around me would be dead for sure. I blew up in the air, I came down. As far as I know, I never went unconscious. I looked up, I looked, I sat up, I looked at my leg, and my left leg was bent at a right angle just below, oh, about six inches below my knee. The boot was blown apart, the foot was apart like a fan, and it was obvious to me that, that I would not have that. The other leg was opened up pretty wide, and I didn't know what the circumstance was there. I tried to reach for my rifle, and my forearm just flopped because both bones were broken. The elbow was driven backwards uh, into a dislocation that's still there. And so at that point, I laid back down. Rifle fire took uh, from this um, bunker, went over top of us. And had I sat, continued to sit up, I would have been hit in the chest, most likely. Uh, extraordinarily fortunate. The medic got to me. Um, he's still a friend to this day. We went in entirely different paths, but that, that moment will unite us forever, obviously. And he got to me and, and did a wonderful job. He later said, I didn't think you were going to live. What the, the, I have three moments that I want to share with you. The first moment is when I think I, I turned the, the corner. Um, I was floundering. I would swear every swear word I could think of. And then I'd turn around and pray every prayer I could think of. And I was a good alder boy who learned how to pray in Latin as well, so I, I, I was able to do all that. I didn't know what I was saying, but I knew the words. <laughs> um, and I, I was floundering. I was bleeding. Uh, they had tourniquets on me. They had given me morphine. And then my thought hit me like a ton of bricks. I cannot die over here and leave my family. And I swear that that moment was the critical moment that took me away from my circumstance and put me back with others. And, and to me, when we need that, we have to separate ourselves from our immediate circumstances. And, and however it is, whether it's anger, whether it's love for a family back home, but I, I swear that's what, that's what helped. The second moment of, uh, I call them recovery, took place at uh, Valley Forge. Um, after six weeks in Japan, I was moved into, into Valley Forge uh, in the middle of the night into a ward. I had no idea who was on either side of me. And when I woke up in the morning, the first light, and, and to see what my circumstances were, I was 22, and so I would say there was a young 19-year-old kid in the bed next to me, okay? He had one leg gone almost to the hip, another leg gone almost to the hip, one arm gone right here, and he was doing a daily regimen of one-arm pull-ups on his bed. And that, that sight never left me. And I, I just I said to myself, I can never feel sorry for myself. I mean, he was a leader in helping me, and I've certainly felt sorry for myself at times, but that was a, a key moment. The third moment was two years later when I did go back I, I was on crutches, did not walk for a couple of years, in part because I wasn't getting very good service from the VA and I, I hated going back to the VA. So I walked around on crutches with an artificial limb fit to my leg with bones still sticking out of my leg. Today it would be malpractice, I'm sure. That's the way it was. I went back to Walter Reed to see a friend and for everybody that's worried, Nellie was no longer my nurse, she was no longer a captain, I was no longer a PFC, so we, we passed all the tests of, of civility. <laughs> <laughs> the, the test of civility. Uh, 
Um, though I might have not wanted to pass all the tests of civility, but we did. We passed all the tests of civility and met that night uh, again after a couple of years. And um, she said to me, Tom, you should be walking by now. And that totally ticked me off. But then being the directive nurse that she is, she turned around, got me back into Walter Reed as a, quote, education case. They did the proper operation. And after a couple of setbacks, one being infection, one being measles on the ward, I, which, which closed down the entire ward. No, I was nobody's friend whatsoever. The, that uh, I was up and walking, and, and for the most part, have stayed walking for 50 years. So I, I want to finish by saying, uh, oftentimes, as Nellie said, we would talk to high schools and colleges, and inevitably, uh, kids would ask me, would you do it again? And you know that's kind of a serious question. And the answer is yes, absolutely, I would do it again. I never met uh, some of my very, very best friends. The captain who I was with when I got hit uh, is one of my very, very best friends and Nellie's very best friend. I would absolutely do it again. First and foremost, I wouldn't have Nellie. I wouldn't have four kids. I wouldn't have the, four, the nine grandkids I have. So life is such that you do that. Second, I would not know myself. I don't know who I would be without that experience. We all learn so much about ourselves, uh, good and bad. We learn what we are capable of. We, uh, and so I, I don't know who I would be without the experience. Third, I don't know if I would have had such an appreciation for life if I didn't come so close to death. And that's, that's a very, it's too bad, but that's kind of the way it is. That's, we, we reflect back that way. And, and so I think I have a, a far greater appreciation for life. And then fourth, I love my brotherhood and sisterhood with Vietnam veterans. Um, and I, almost every time I see a hat, I have to go up and talk, just like I love my brotherhood and sisterhood with amputees. And every time I see an amputee, the family has to stop because Tom's going to talk to him for a long time. Um, so that's, that's my story, and, and I am sticking to it, and I'm going to give it back to Nellie. So. Thank you. It's important in closing to realize that it's not just what happens to us in life. It's what you choose to tell yourself about what happens to you in life, and then what you choose to do with it. Many of you have done similar to Tom and I. You've either chosen a career, or you've done some kind of community work, you volunteer, or you work in some capacity that helps to enhance the life of someone else. And in that way, you have taken your experience and you have used it to give back to others. And in part, because you understand what it means, because of your experience in the military, you understand what it means to ask something more of yourself. And you also understand what it means and value what it means to be part of something bigger than yourself. So all of you out there who have continued to use your experience in some other way in your life, thank you so much for honoring us, not only with your service, but for honoring us by continuing to use that service today. Thank you. Thank you.
say one thing as we all get uh, move on in life this may be <laughs> it's getting harder and harder to remember my speeches so <laughs> uh, thank you <laughs> and thank you for your service I couldn't say it any better than Tom I think we're ready for uh, an amazing meal prepared uh, by Chef Mike and the several volunteers uh, that have been working uh, to serve a wonderful lunch today, uh, both yesterday and today. So I'd, I'd like to say thank you to the staff, the volunteers, and Chef Mike. Well, our thanks to Melissa Spicer, co-founder, Clear Path for Veterans, to Tom and Nellie Coakley, Vietnam Vets, and, of course, we can't forget you for joining us once again. Please let your friends know about this program and share with us your comments and suggestions for future shows. Also, send us your upcoming events. We can talk about them on the air. You can always drop me a line at vets at wjffradio.org. And don't forget, if you or someone you know is experiencing anxiety or needs to speak to someone, here are some numbers to remember. The Veterans Crisis Line, 1-800-273-8255. Press 1 to speak with someone. You can send a text message to 838.